Welcome back, Brown Girls, to the final episode of Season 1 of the Brown Girls Guide podcast. I'm Ashanti Golar, founder of the Brown Girls Guide and the political director for Emerge. Today, we'll be speaking with political communication specialist Heather Barmore. Heather currently serves as Vote Run Lead Senior Advisor for Public Affairs and NARAL Senior Advisor for Digital. Heather is one of the few Black women doing high-level political communications. I'm thrilled to talk to her about how she got her start and what she has learned along the way. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Heather, how are you? I am good. How are you? I am good. This is so exciting. I'm so excited to talk to you today. You just have this I'm excited to talk with you too. You have this great, interesting background that I'm really ready for everyone to hear about. So Awesome. What I want to start with first is I found a caption that you use to describe yourself. And it says, I love narrative nonfiction. I watch a lot of C-SPAN, believer in political engagement, opinionated. Where did this love for <laughs> politics come from? Um, so the the origin of my love for politics is quite similar to the one that you described in your first episode of the BGG podcast with um, Leader Abrams, which is that in childhood, I was um, kind of a nerd with very few friends. And I spent a lot of time at home watching um, and intrigued by C-SPAN. And for me, it was the Senate. So it was Ted Kennedy who piqued my interest. And then next thing you know, I'm the star of my AP U.S. government and politics class in high school because I'm just so into... Um, politics and civic engagement. Um, And then also being a bit of a nerd in high school meant um, having a lot of time to read. And for me, the the narrative nonfiction portion was being able to read a lot of nonfiction and learning to really express myself via my writing. Um, My my, uh, junior year honors teacher, she loves to like talk about me to people still. Um, And... Lastly, this love of politics came from um, living in upstate New York. I'm from Albany, um, so the capital of the state. And at one point, someone had gifted me a copy of Savage Inequalities, which is a book by Jonathan Kozal. And being in Albany, I really began to notice the discrepancies in education that I was receiving in upstate New York um, and what was being received or not being received by students um, in the Bronx. And that's what really led me to think about politics in terms of how it impacts policy. Um, But my parents weren't overly political. They took us to vote. Um, But most of my love of politics was formed by sitting at home alone after school, watching C-SPAN and being a nerd. (laughs) I relate to that so much. Like you said, the love of C-SPAN, definitely watching Senator Kennedy. He was just so powerful on the House floor. I also had a love for government and history in high school. Still have a love for government and history, being an adult in politics. 
And that is just, that is so great. It's like, this is why we're also friends and click because we have the same background. (laughs) So you tweeted the other day, it was a random tweet, but I saw it and you're talking about one day I'm going to tell you all about the seven years I spent as a lobbyist. And you said like a legit real life, here's your check lobbyist, state and federal at that. So I want today to be the day that you finally tell us about the seven years that you spent as a lobbyist. Um, yeah, I was a lobbyist um, <clears throat> for a teacher's union in New York State. So one of the largest state teacher's un- unions in the country. Um, my mom was one of my bosses. She was one of the um, executive members of the organization, And it was a place where she had worked for 20 years. And so I looked at it as a family and I was like, oh, this is an easy thing for me to do. Move back to Albany. I was 23 at the time. So um, I was very young. And but I always wanted to be an education lobbyist and I had always wanted to work on the Hill. So I was like, this is the perfect job for me. So I served as um, their federal liaison and would spend weeks in D.C. lobbying. Um, I lobbied for the Affordable Care Act. Um, my big win, I think, was ERA, the um, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Um, and I frequently attended fundraisers with some pretty prominent politicians. And just so everybody knows, Senator Gillibrand can throw a killer fundraiser. Um, <laughs> I believe it said I was 23 and I had no idea what I was doing but it was also fun to hit up all of these events with free drinks and free food um like any young 20 something um I feel like that's the same thing now even being a 30 something yeah those things are great yeah I'm always like oh there's free drinks there I will be there um (laughs) I will, I will drink all of your free champs, all of yes, the free champagne. Exactly. I'm like, you have free Prosecco, you have free rosé, I am there. Um, yes, you have yes. free cheese, yes, I'm there. You want to get Ashanti and Heather to your events, have free Prosecco. Yes, have free Prosecco. I'm always down for that. But um, like I said, education lobbying was always something that I wanted to do. And um, like I said, it was my dream job. And there's also this great storytelling aspect of lobbying that – gets lost in this all talk of the glad handing at, you know, very expensive fundraisers at, uh, you know, the Saratoga racetrack. And for me, it was telling the mem- these members of Congress the stories of our over 600,000 members and how a shift in policy would impact them personally and their students since I worked at a teacher's union. Um, but it was something I did literally for you know, most of my 20. So from the time I was 23 until I was 30. And then it got old pretty quickly and things shifted internally. And then I got fired. Um, oh, no. Yeah. I got fired from being a lobbyist. Um, I was, it was be- for being young and stupid and, uh, l- you know, internal politics and losing my mentors in the organization. Um. But of course, I have like nothing but love for the for um, what they do. Um, but yeah, I got fired. <laughs> so not only was I a lobbyist, but I also got fired. And what you just talked about is something that happens so much when there are power changes, dynamic changes in organizations. 
that does impact you. You may not think it, but particularly in politics, we see this happen all the time. Yes, there was um, a big power struggle um, internally where one group of um, people didn't like the current officers. And I had known these current officers since childhood. And I, you know, my mom worked with these officers since I was, you know, eight years old. And um, I kind of went with the wrong side um, unknowingly because, again, I was young and stupid. Um, But it definitely changed the power dynamics. It kind of changed how the organization was run. And then it was just, I mean, it was also time for me to go. It was seven years. I was in Albany, New York, um, which is my hometown. But it was time to kind of explore. So, yeah, I got fired and then I went to Madrid for a month. So <laughs> it's, uh, it didn't turn out too terribly. And clearly I have a job now. Um, but, yeah, I got fired. This, I think this is the first time I really um, spoken about being fired. Normally I just say, oh, I left. But now I got fired. So it's one of the things that I'm loving about this podcast is women are able to say those things that they normally don't say And everything that we're going to hear, even going forward, I know it's going to have just such a great impact on the women who are listening. Just the fact that you had that honesty and you just shared it so broadly. And I'm also just in awe of your story you talked about on becoming a lobbyist. Because in the political world, we think of lobbyists as these tall white men in suits who are on K Street in Washington, D.C., And I love seeing that you were a lobbyist. Terry Broussard Williams, she wrote a great blog for the BGG about her journey to becoming a lobbyist. And these are just so very different than what we have in our mind about what a lobbyist should be. And it's one of the reasons why I love telling these stories so much, to show people that there is no traditional way, there is no traditional person who has political jobs. Everyone has a different path for how they get to where they are. Yeah, and my path was just kind of being like, sure, I'll, they, they literally were like, um, the person who was leaving the position, I had actually interned for him, and he suggested my name, and I was like, sure, I'll take this job. Of course he'll be a lobbyist. Why not? Um, but I was totally that the lobbyist to like didn't wear suits because I don't like I don't look good in suits. And so it was a lot of like bright colored dresses um, and just me being like I said, me being 23, 24, 25 and going into these high powered meetings and, you know, shaking hands and being like, yes, I'm here. I am a child, <laughs> but I'm here anyway, and I'm going to talk your ear off about, um, you know, this piece of legislation. Um, and it was, it was fun. It really was fun for the first several years. Um, I think once things change and things got overly political, that's when it stopped being fun, but it was fun. Um, I don't know if I would do it again, but while I did it, um, like I said, it was, it was a good time. It was a good first real job. And something I keep picking up on is you keep saying, oh, I was a child, but you were clearly young, but they felt that you were capable to do this job at such a young age. And I also picked up on that you said, 
a man recommended you for the job, which is something I like to tell the people all the time. Obviously, I love being a woman. I'm all about women's empowerment, but there are also men out there who can serve as mentors and offer guidance and career advice to help you along your journey. Mm -hmm. A black man named Floyd Cameron, um, he, I had interned for him in high school and he was like, you know what? Heather Barmore has lived in DC. She knows DC. We need somebody to be our federal person. She would be great. And it was, um, on top of that, like I made, we, I made these great relationships with the folks at the AFT where I'd also, where I'd interned prior, um, and with the NEA. And so I still have those great relationships, um, and, you know, kind of being able to learn from such experienced people, um, including like Randy Weingarten. Um, she is someone who I learned a lot from, um, you know, uh, Lily Eskelson, again, someone who I learned a lot from John Stokes, John Stocks, sorry, apologies, John Stocks from the NEA, um, Karen White, um, Tor Cowan, who's still the legislative director at AFT. I learned so much from these people, and it really helped me kind of move my career forward and do more um, uh, in my career later. Um, but yeah, it was just this young woman who was like, just eager. I was, I was also really, really eager to learn. Oh, and totally I think that's why I did that. well people while see I was that there. Eagerness, that willingness and advice I give to young women all the time when they're starting their political journey is you never know who's watching you. That's how I know I felt when I was coming up and people would offer me opportunities. I very much be, oh, I didn't even know you knew who I was, let alone my name. But when you are really committed to making change, wanting to do this work, do better professionally and personally, that does help you out along in your career. Yeah, I mean, one of the, and I, the last story, little story I'll tell about this is that you just mentioned not, uh, you know, making sure, not noticing that people are noticing what you're doing. And at one point, um, Karen White from the NEA, she called me and said, I want you to come to D.C. for eight months and work out of the NEA and help us with this project that we're doing. And I was like, I didn't even know you knew that I existed Um because I was always the, you know, the young person sitting at the table um, during their state, um, their, their like larger state meetings. And so I was like, okay, sure, I'll come to D.C. for eight months. And they, you know, had me come live downtown D.C. for eight months um, doing work um, with them and doing some organizing up in New Hampshire and being a part of the labor table there. And so I got a lot of experience, but it was, again, something that I was like, you all, I, you know, I'm like, I just show up and I'm just all just, I'm just like happy to be here because I like DC. Um, and they really took notice um, of me, which again is is something that I'm continually um, appreciative, uh, appreciative of um, because they have become such good friends. But yeah, it was like, you know, come to DC, work for us. And my bosses in New York were like, huh, you? But um, I did it. And it was, again, it was, it was fun. I love it. 
So let's talk a little bit more about feminism. So your father is from the South, and you tell the story about when you took him to see the movie Selma with you. And for you, it was learning more about the past. We touched on earlier about your love for history. But for him, he lived during the civil rights movement. So it was something that he vividly remembered. And you said one of the things he tells you all the time is, if we don't know our past, how can we know our present or our future? How has this impacted the political work that you have chosen to do? Um, so this was from a Guardian piece I wrote ages ago. And so I, this is like the, one of the, this is one of the second most quoted pieces that people quote back to me. Um, and I always forget about it. I'm like, oh yeah, I wrote this great piece about my dad. Um, I love my dad so much. He is this older black man from Birmingham, Alabama, and he talks like an older black man from Birmingham, Alabama. And he raised um, uh, an upstate New Yorker who thinks that snowshoeing is a fun activity. So it's very interesting. Um, but, you know, he's he's just one like he's just an old black guy from from the South. And I love it. It's it's very typical. Um, he loves his grits. <laughs> um, and he's always talking to me about like, you know, working on farms and then, you know, obviously talking about his work in the civil rights movement because he lived there. He lived through it. Um, and the part where he said, you know, if we don't know our past, how can we know our present, our future? Um, I had to beg him to do that interview. And he was a great sport about it because I was genuinely int- intrigued and interested in his story. And it was the first time that I had that opportunity to really sit down with him and talk about this. Um And, you know, I wanted to hear his response to a movie about something that he actually lived through, which we all know wasn't really that long ago. Um, And for me, it's twofold. First, you know, in the way that I do my political work, first of all, everything I do, um, I know that he literally fought for. You know, he lived in Bull Connors, Birmingham, um, and he, you know, I talk a lot about democracy and civic engagement and voting. And this is something that he marched for. He was arrested for. I mean, you know, they took a hose to him. And so I take a bit of that and a bit of him with me into all of the work that I do. Um, and then, you know, knowing our past, you know, I, I think like so many other Black women we realize who are in this space, we realize that we stand on the shoulders of giants. And, you know, you think about the work of Fannie Lou Hamer, and that's what led me to want to be an active participant and work at the Democrat convention in 2016 and be a part of the platform process. Um, and so I often go, go back to thinking of these giants. So the Hamers, Shirley Chisholm, Dr. Dorothy Hay, and know that it's the work that they did that's allowed me to get where I am today and to have, you know, an actual seat at the table and to go around the country talking about the talking about healthy democracies and the need to focus on state and local races, even in quote unquote off years. And so I literally get to do the work I do because of my father and because of the women that came before me. That is so powerful. And also love that reminder you put it in that state and local elections happen every year. So we need to get out there in those odd number years and just not the even number years and just certainly not voting only for the president. 
though, that's really important. 2020 is around the corner. Somebody said that to me the other day. They were like, what about 2020? I was like, 2020? 2019? (laughs) There are a whole bunch of races Hello, Virginia, Louisiana. We just had municipal elections in Wisconsin. And like every year is an election year. Mm -hmm. And we like, we need to, I think, you know, this is kind of a sidebar, but like this is, we need to just kind of stop with this whole only even number years, that's when it really matters. I'm like, no, because it's the hyper, it's those local races, like your school board elections that are going to impact your or your child or your community's day-to-day life. So, you know, think about that. Don't, you know, the, the president is going to, whoever the president is going to be, yes, he'll make, there'll be some impact, but like, you need to be really thinking about those local um, odd number year elections. And so that's something that I preach every single day. It's no secret that money is an integral part of both politics and nonprofits. What is lesser known, though, is that the money doesn't have to come from big corporations and billionaires. In fact, small dollar donors are starting to learn their power. In the 2018 election cycle, they gave more than $1.6 billion to campaigns and organizations through ActBlue's platform. That's because ActBlue makes online giving easy and secure. ActBlue's simple and powerful digital fundraising tools empower donors and enable campaigns and organizations big and small to flourish. As a nonprofit and a tech organization, ActBlue does rigorous A-B testing and its tools are optimized for mobile. With a team of caring and innovative people and unparalleled offerings, ActBlue makes the choice easy for candidates and organizations looking for fundraising platform. It comes as no surprise that ActBlue is the choice for thousands of Democratic campaigns and progressive organizations. Special thanks to ActBlue for their support of this first season of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. ActBlue is responsible for the content of this advertising. So I want to talk about another piece that you wrote, and this was in response to Patricia Arquette's Oscar speech. And she said, it's time for all the gay people and all the people of color to fight for us now. And that was in response to her talking about feminism and supporting white women, particularly around equal pay and in the Hollywood industry. And reading your article, you had the same reaction to me, which was very WTF. Did she actually say that? To be told that, as a woman of color and a bisexual woman, I have not been doing enough for women, by which I can only assume she means white women, in the quest for gender equality is not only incredibly hurtful to those of us who check many boxes when it comes to identity, but also a harmful point of view. So I know so many listening right now can 100% relate to what you just said. But we have your quote, but just for you as a woman, as a woman of color and politics who does fight every day, you just talked about how you reminded people how important these everyday elections are. How does that make you feel having someone at a very high profile Hollywood event say that you needed to be doing more? Um. This is the first, <laughs> this is the, the other Guardian piece. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, I love that piece. Um, it's actually where that, you know, you know, you know that Meryl Streep gif where she's like, you know, wooing and pointing at the stage. That's where that comes from. Um, I, 
I'm learning as I, I age <laughs> that and try and I'm really trying to believe that when people um, know better, they do better. Um, I feel like just for so long, black women have been active participants in their democracy, in their communities, and it largely gets ignored. And I remember when this happened, I was like, hi, I'm black. I'm bisexual. I check all of these boxes. There are people of color who are women, who are queer, who have been doing this work for years. I mean, we've not only been fighting for gender equality and equity, but racial equality and the freedom to live our truth as a queer or gay or bisexual or trans. And so it really bothered me at the time to to hear this white woman on the stage saying, okay, so now, you know, people of color and, you know, gay, you know, the people who are part of the LGBT community, you need to step up and help us. And I'm like, wait a minute, um, let's backtrack for a second there. Um, you know, we've been doing the work. Also, we need you to help us. Um, and so, it's really, you know, why we need to have, continue to have these conversations about intersectionality and intersectional, you know, and, and intersectional feminism and really question what, um, uh, what, you know, that word diverse means and if white women are really taking in and absorbing the real experiences of black women and women of color to heart and, um, you know, those who are, who like me check many boxes in terms of my identity. And for me, I want to know that white women are digesting these criticisms. And I think over, you know, that was a few years ago. And I think over the last few years, we're starting to see movement in that direction. Um, but, you know, we need more white women to know that they need to do better and how they can be better allies. And I think at the time, we, of this, uh, I think it was, that was in 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, you know, at the time, that conversation hadn't really been, um, on, you know, on fire as it is now. And we didn't have as many white women who were like, oh, I need to be a better ally. How can I be a better ally? What can I do? And I think that, you know, was, you know, kind of one of the, those moments where um, more Black women and women of color started to vocalize their criticisms of white feminism. Um, I, you know, I, like I said, I hope that, you know, m as more white women are becoming allies and becoming better allies and really seeing what happens to people of color every single day, that, you know, um, like I said, that they're, you know, they're learning better and knowing better and hopefully doing better. Yes. So I want to pivot to the work that you and I currently do today. You are my sister in the training space, getting women trained and ready to run for office. So tell us about where you're at currently, Vote Run Lead, such a great organization, and the work that you're doing there. Um, so la I think it was last week, I believe, um, I became the Director of Public Affairs there, which is pretty exciting. Yay! I've been at Vote Run Lead for um, since August. Um, we are a national nonpartisan organization where we train women to run for office. So conservative women to the most liberal of women, we train them to run for office. 
um, and to help support other women to run for office, to be campaign managers, to be finance directors. Ayanna Presley's um, finance director is actually a Vote Run Lead alum. Um, How to tell their story, how to um, communicate with um, constituents and voters. Um, uh, So, but as director of public affairs, I get to create and drive a lot of the uh, strategy around um, media and press and um, strategy around partnerships and what it, what they could look like. Um, and I get to do great work with Emerge, uh, which is one of my favorite organizations. And I get to work on projects like Power Rising, which is another fun thing I get to do. Um, but it's been a really um, interesting ride to see so many women who raise their hand and are like, I want to run for office. I want to support another woman to run for office. How do I do this? And so that's what I really enjoy doing is, you know, being able to tell women, yes, you can run for office and or yes, you can support another woman to run for office. Here's how. And I think at Vote Run we're really trying to create a pipeline of women candidates and women um, campaign staff outside of that traditional party structure. Um, So it's been really um, fun. It's been really interesting. It's fast paced. Um, There are very few of us in the office, but we have a lot of um, national certified trainers who go around the country and literally just train women um, from, you know, California to Connecticut about how to run for office and what it takes. Um, So it's really, um, it's a lot of fun um, to hear from so many women who are, um, who, you know, see um, a man kind of just wake up in the morning and be like, I was meant to run for office. I'm going to do it. And, you know, kind of be like, well, then hell yeah, I can run for school board. Um, So that's been a lot of fun. Oh, that is awesome. And I just saw that one of my faves, Tashara Jones, the treasurer of the city of St. Louis, she is one of your new certified trainers. She is. Tashara is awesome. We have really great trainers. We have Tashara Jones. We have Leah Webb, who was the um, youngest woman, youngest person ever elected elected to the Binghamton, New York City Council. We have Naila Maru, who um, was actually the person to nominate Um, Hillary Clinton at the 2016 convention. Um, Yeah, we have Rena Shaw, um, who is an MSNBC contributor. We have some really, uh, Jamu Green is one of our nationally certified trainers. She's a Fox News analyst. Um, So we have some pretty awesome trainers who are like, yes, I'll go wherever you know, you all need me to go to talk to women and, you know, get them to run for office. Um, Actually, Leah and I will both be at uh, She the People in a couple of weeks. So that will be exciting. Um, But yeah, we just kind of go around talking to women and um, getting them to get involved. It's cool. It's fun. Oh, love it. And can't wait to see you at She the People. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when a woman walks into a vote runly training, what can she expect? So she can expect to take part in our award winning and our signature run as you are training. Um, And we call it run as you are um, as it's our curriculum. And 
It was created in response to the changing political environment and evolving attitudes around women, regardless of political affiliation to run for office. And we say, you know, you are enough. Your lived experiences are enough. You can run for office. So in the case of, so Lauren Underwood is one of our um, alums and she's now, you know, a member of Congress. And she went to, attended one of our trainings um, and was like, oh, you know, I'm just a nurse and I'm a millennial and I'm young and I'm black and um, all of those things. And we were like, nope, you can still run for office. You run as you are. You have the passion and the drive to run for, to run for office and you should do it. Um, and so it, we really focus our curriculum on demystifying the campaign process and encouraging civic participation. And so our mod- modules include telling your story, fundraising, how to staff a campaign, what to expect on the campaign trail. Um, and we really focus on creating authentic leaders who can speak um, on authority and and on their expertise. Um and we train women to run for office by offering them real resources, which are sourced by our expert certified national trainers. That's what we call them. So a lot of these are women who are, have run for office themselves. They may have won. They may have lost. They may have gone on to higher office. But they really want to help other women get through this process, um, starting with raising your hand, raising their hand to run for office or support another woman all the way up to um, governing and how to do that effectively. Um, And, you know, our our big belief is that women are enough and they have enough, the talent and the skills within them to run for office. And so, you know, we've had this so-called women's wave over the last, um, in the 2018 election. And so we want to turn it into an ocean. And so, you know, by encouraging them to run as they are, um, we've trained about 14,000 women since the 2016, 2016 election. And so our focus is to really train women to run on their own terms um, from nurses and educators and new moms and regardless of political experience. So that's what you can expect. You can expect a lot of um, women supporting other women and kind of creating this sisterhood within their um their uh, individual trainings. And I'll say this, another thing about Lauren Underwood. So when she took our training, you know, she had decided that she hadn't quite yet decided that she was going to run for Congress. But when she mentioned it, people in the room who weren't quite ready to run for office were like, okay, so we'll help you. And then on top of that, as she started to staff up her campaign, she had um, all of those who were working on her campaign take vote run lead trainings um, in order to help support her and help get her campaign off the ground. And eventually she won. So that's one of my favorite stories is uh, the Lauren Underwood getting other women in her uh, training group to help her to run for office. And so that's really what you can expect. Um, We try to drive this idea of, you know, vote run lead as a family um, and so we have this great alumni network who, um, of people of women who have all trained with us in the past and who really want to support um, other women as they go along their journey. So that's kind of what you can expect from a vote run lead training. It's just a lot of women being like, "Yes, I'm ready to do this. 
uh, I will help you or you can help me. Oh, I love it. That's my favorite thing is the women who aren't quite sure yet what they want to do, but they know that they will spend their time, their energy, they'll donate a little bit of money to women that they meet in the training. It's it's fabulous. I love it. I love it. And if someone wants to learn more about Vote Run Lead, how would they do that? Uh, VoteRunLead.org. Um, also, our big news is that on May 18th, we are, Saturday, May 18th, we are hosting a 20-city training. Um, it's our largest single day training ever. And we will be, it will be literally be 20 simultaneous trainings in 20 different cities across the country. Uh, and there'll also be an online component if someone is unable to attend in person. Um, you know, with this single day training, it's called the Run As You Are 2019 National Training. Um, and we've watched so many women march and become more vocal over the past few years. And so we looked at this as the next logical step is to train them how to run for office or how to support other women run for office or how to train them in um, becoming campaign staff. So that is our next big thing is literally a big training that I'm still in shock that we're like, I'm like, we're going to pull this off. I think we're going to pull this off. But like I said, it's in 20 different cities. It's going to be amazing. Um, So yeah, that's where you can learn more about Vote Run Lead. We're also on Twitter at Vote Run Lead, Facebook at Vote Run Lead, um, Instagram, again, Vote Run Lead. Um, Feel free to, you know, find me on Twitter and ask me about Vote Run Lead. I'm at Heather Barmore. But um, yeah, that's where you can find more about Vote Run Lead. And you can join us on May 18th in a city near you. Oh, that is going to be so fabulous. I can't wait to hear how that goes. I know it's going to be amazing. And our final question for you, Heather, what advice do you have for the brown girls out there listening saying, I want to be just like her? (laughs) Um, <laughs> I, I love the chuckle that I get whenever I ask this question to the guests. Because I'm like, I'm a nerd. I'm literally such a nerd. Um, uh, I think find something that you're passionate about. Everything that I've done and what led me into politics was because I was really passionate about education policy. So that's what started my career. Um, But find something that you are passionate about and that you want to fight for um, and go with it. And that might change and that might evolve. You know, I started as a lobbyist, passionate about education policy. I'm still passionate about education policy, but that turned into being, um, you know, the deputy director of digital communications for the convention, which turned into being the digital director for the mayor of Washington, D.C. And now I, you know, train other, now I'm, you know, the director of public affairs for Vote Run Lead, where I train women to run for office. So, you know, find find that one thing that will get your foot in the door. Um, And the other advice is find a mentor. Oh my gosh, finding a mentor is the most important step you can take. Um, you know, you and I share a great mentor, Leah Daughtry, who's like our second mother. 
Um, yes. And she has, I, I mean, I think I can speak for both of us when I say that she has impacted both of our lives and our careers in such an amazing way. So find that person who you can go to at any time and be like, hey, I need help. Hey, what do you think of this? I just need a chat. I just need to, you know, talk about this problem. But um, if you want to be like me, you know, watch a lot of C-SPAN. Stay at home in your PJs, watch C-SPAN. <laughs> Go to therapy, um, do some writing, and be super passionate. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much, Heather, for your time today. Everyone, please check out Vote Run Lead. You can also check out the amazing articles that Heather has written for The Guardian. And Heather, I will see you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's a wrap on season one of the podcast. Thank you to all of our brown girls and non-brown girls who have joined us on this journey. I want to extend my sincere appreciation to each of you for making this podcast a part of your day and for all the kind words and feedback you have shared. Also, a special thank you to all of our guests from the first season who have inspired, motivated, and educated so many people. My advice is to do the things in your life that are pure expressions of who you are. You need to be just like you. And that means figuring out the you you want to be. More and more people who look like us say, I actually can do this job and I can do it really well. And I can bring up just wealth of different perspectives and knowledge to the table. Dare to be yourself. You are good enough. And if you do that, the universe will conspire in your favor and you will be elevated and moved to wherever you need to be in order to bring to bear your contribution to the world. Until next season.